All right, ladies, I am going to cut you off. I'm so glad you're having such great discussion. That is a beautiful thing. Uh, my name is Christina Hannon. I work here at Candeo. I'm on the community ministry team alongside of Sarah Herring and Jordan Prahoda. And my husband Adam and I have been married for 16 years. We love traveling and adventure and trying new things, but we also love just like hanging out at home, playing some board games, having a cup of tea together. Um, we actually started a new hobby. We've been podcasting together. So if you want to listen, you're totally welcome to. Um, it's called Forefront. <laughs> it's called Forefront Podcast. And our hope is just to encourage um, marriages and to um, just open communication and friendship within marriage. So um, check it out if you want to. No pressure. Uh, we have four kids. My, my daughter is here with me tonight, Arne. And something I do, and, and maybe I shouldn't. This is up for debate. But whenever there's a birthday party or Christmas and my kids receive a gift and they don't say thank you, it's kind of like, oh, you got to say thank you, right? And so I try and coax it out of them a little bit. I'm like, oh, wasn't that so kind of grandma to give you that nice gift? Like, what should you say? You know, and, and hoping on the basis of gratitude to remind them like, oh, yeah, I should say thank you for this gift that I received. And I think that's maybe what Paul is doing here in Philippians in chapter 2. Paul is presenting this case to the Philippians. He's making an appeal to them. He's saying, look at what Christ has done for you. How should you respond? He says in verse 1, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... He's not questioning if there are those things, okay? He knows that there's encouragement in Christ. So it's sort of a rhetorical question that he's posing. What he's saying is, since there is, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love. So Paul is appealing to the Philippians on the basis of gratitude for what Christ has done. It's sort of like he's setting up a domino train for them. He sets up these four dominoes, this being so, and this, and this, and this. And then as the dominoes fall over, what? What should be the response? Well, as you look at how Christ has interacted with you, it should change the way you think. Particularly, the way you think about the other believers that you're walking through this life with. Paul is saying that the church should be unified and humble with the mind of Christ. So Paul says that they should think the same way, having the same love, being united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Those things are all about unity. And then he goes on and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Everyone should look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Those things are all about humility. And that's the opposite of arrogance or the opposite of personal claims of entitlement. But all of these things, whether unity or humility, they're all about others. You see, Philippi was a city. And Paul is writing to a church. This is a life with other believers. I kind of think that we should call it HGTV Philippi edition, where you are ripping out like this old bathroom and you're tearing down a wall over here and you're going to redo the landscaping and voila, it's going to be beautiful. But what he's ripping out is just unity and he's building up unity and he's tearing down these claims of personal entitlement and he's, he's laying down humility instead. And instead of trees of selfish ambition growing up, he's saying that they need the life-giving trees of considering and helping others. So, Candeo, let's build unity and let's be humble. But in order to build unity, you have to be humble. And in order to be humble, we need to embrace the gospel. That's where we get the mind of Christ. The gospel is the place we have to start. And what do you know? It is laid out beautifully for us in verses 6 through 11. This portion of Philippians is actually called the Messiah poem or the Christ hymn. It has a very metered rhythm to it if you look at it in the original Greek that it was written in. So we kind of lose that in our English translation, but it's so metered that it's likely a song that the early church would sing together. And part of this song was actually written by Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 23, 800 years before Paul wrote to the Philippians. And when Isaiah wrote it, he had no idea who he was prophesying about. And so Paul is here pointing, saying, look at what Isaiah wrote. That's about Jesus. And so today, here in this room, we have this amazing privilege. We know more about what Isaiah wrote than Isaiah even did when he was writing part of the Bible. But that knowledge isn't going to be enough. We actually need to put it into practice. And so, as we look in verse 5, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Or, you could say, have the same mind of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A question that I had when I read this was, what does it mean when he says he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited? That didn't make sense to me. And since I was teaching on it, I couldn't just read past it and pretend that it didn't matter, okay? And so I had to look this up. And so in the ESV, it says something to be grasped. So that exploited or grasped word means seized or robbed. So we could say he did not consider his equality with God as something that could be stolen from him. Jesus is God. You could put an equal sign there. Jesus equals God forever. And that's something that's going to be unchanging about him. You see, he was with the Father in heaven, being exalted. He left that for a time, came to earth, took on the full form of humanity, suffered the punishment for sin, proved more powerful than death, rose, visited his friends on earth, and then ascended back into heaven. And he did all of that while never losing his essential nature as God. Do you remember the cafeteria at school growing up? And as you came through the lunch line, you've got your tray of chicken nuggets, and you're looking around for somewhere to sit, and you find your friends, and you're like, oh, I've got a spot, right? So you sit down by your friends, but then you realize, man, I forgot the ketchup. So you got to get up and get some ketchup. But before you do, you turn to your friend, and you say, hey, save my seat. I'll be right back. Don't let anyone take my spot. And you bolt over there, and you get your ketchup, and you come back before anyone can take your spot. Jesus did not have a save-my-seat mentality. He knew that no one could take his place. No one could steal his seat. No one could grasp that place of equality with God. And so he had the full freedom to leave his seat come to earth as a man, and then go and take his seat back up. And this is important because historically, this has been an issue of false teaching within the church. It's actually called the kenosis theory. It's that Christ emptied himself of his deity or his essential nature as godness, his godness when he came to earth. So let's be clear. Yes, he left his place, but he didn't lose his identity. He was secure in that, and no one could take it from him. He put aside his privileges. You see, he deserved honor. He was entitled. That was good. And he took on the nature of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity. The beauty of Christ's humility is that he was entitled, and yet he humbled himself. And in fact, when he did that, when he came to earth, he actually just brought more attention and more praise to how amazing he was. Because any amount of him setting aside his God rights 
and coming to earth would be more than humanity deserves. But he went even farther than that because then he set aside his human rights. He suffered persecution, mistreatment, injustice, a criminal's death. Jesus took humility to a level that humanity cannot even relate to. You see, we can give up our human rights, but he gave up his God rights and then his human rights. And Paul says it is for this reason, because of this massive act of humility on Christ's part, that he has been given the name that is above every name. Lord, sovereign ruler. You see, he has the right to rule. And it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, in light of Christ, in light of who he is and what he's done, obey and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When he says fear and trembling, that's awe and respect. Stand in awe of who Christ is and what he's done for you. This is going to be your biggest action step in the whole chapter. The gospel should wreck any claim that you have on entitlement. It should form in you the mind of Christ so that you can unite in humility with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So he says, work out your own salvation. Are you saved? You see, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And right now, we live with this opportunity to repent of our sins. We live in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So right now, we can confess unto salvation. But there will come a time when every tongue will confess him and say, yes, you are Lord. But for some, it will be unto judgment because they refused to acknowledge him as Lord while they were on this earth. And so if you have not believed unto salvation, do it. Because it's possible to go to church, to do this Bible study, to, to pray regularly, without ever having accepted Christ as Lord of your life. You could do all the right things. But as Charles Spurgeon said, it might be that you would prove at the very end to be unconverted and find yourself going to hell on a feather bed. Jesus has the power and the authority right now in this very room to take you from a position of a guilty, condemned sinner and move you to a child of God who is forgiven with a place in his kingdom. His power is that unfathomable. 
And if you have already believed unto salvation, we should be asking, am I standing in awe of him? You see, there's a danger of making an idol out of a partial view of Christ. If we only look to one or a few of his attributes and not the entirety of who he is and how he's revealed himself to us. So I'll show you this example. This is a picture of a lamb. And in the grass, it actually says, worthy is the lamb. So this is representing Jesus. And yes, it shows him as a lamb. But it doesn't show him as a lion. It shows him as unblemished. But it doesn't show the bloody sacrifice. It shows his kindness but it doesn't show his deity or his victory or his power or that he's ruling a kingdom. See, we need to embrace all of Christ, everything that he is. And the implications of a Lord like that, it ought to make you tremble. It ought to fill you with a measure of awe. And it ought to change the way that you think. And it's from that position that we're humbled. And we can consider others better than ourselves. And we can live together in unity. And the reason that we can do any of that is because it's God who's working in us. That's what verse 13 is telling us. God works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. God is the one putting forth the power. The Greek word here for work, when it says that God works in you, is energeo, and it means to energize. God is energizing you to take delight in and to do the work of his good purpose. So what is his good purpose? What does he want? Well, he wants us to stand in awe of Jesus. He wants us to tremble at the reality of the gospel. And he wants the gospel to to wreck our personal claims on entitlement and make us humble and form in us the mind of Christ so that we can unite as brothers and sisters in mission to the glory of God the Father. Now, this verse does not say that God is going to make it easy for us to do those things. It says he will energize us to desire it and to do it. Struggles will come that will make it hard. Illness. I mean, you look at Epaphroditus, who was sick to the point of death, or even Paul himself, who was constantly struggling with a thorn in his flesh job loss, or in Paul's case, the loss of his whole social status. You know, he's in prison as he's writing this, chained to a Roman guard, people backbiting you. How about the people in chapter one who were preaching the gospel for no reason other than to cause trouble for Paul, who was already in prison? 
there's going to be struggles in your marriage. There's going to be lost patience with your kids. Exhaustion as you learn how to care for your aging parents. God, we need you to energize us so that we want to do your work and that we can do your work. It's God who's working through us. And one way he energizes us is through our community. You see, we need encouragement. We need people to come alongside us when it gets hard and it gets exhausting. I have a drawer in my vanity at home and it's stuffed full of notes of encouragement that I've received through the years. And I save them because there are days when I don't want to plan and record a podcast or I don't want to serve my children. But I'll pull out a note from my friend Deb saying how important it is for her to have an example of a Christ-centered marriage to follow. And I'll pull out a note from my daughter saying, thank you so much for loving me. See, Paul is addressing this church and he calls them my dear friends. We need to be dear friends to one another. And that's one way that God energizes us to delight in and to work according to his good purpose. And we need to do those things without grumbling and arguing. That's a verse that I often take out of context and I'll use it with my kids when they don't want to do their chores. But that's not how it's used here. This grumbling is a muttering or complaining against God's providence and his will and his circumstances in our life. And that arguing is questioning or criticism directed negatively toward God. So this sort of grumbling and arguing is something that just flies directly in the face of the gospel. It's like saying that God's good purpose is not good enough for you. And it often comes out of my mouth in the form of a sigh. Like, ugh, again? I have to do this again? That's grumbling and arguing. And that kind of thinking is not seeking after its, the interests of others. It's seeking after its own interests. And that's not what our response should be in light of what Christ has done. We are to live a blameless and pure life that shines like a star in an otherwise very dark sky. We didn't live like that before. And that's what a testimony is, right? This is what my life looked like before. And then I responded to the gospel and I knew I can't live like that anymore. Based on what Christ has done, he is my Lord, and my life needs to look different now. It's kind of the before and after pictures in that HGTV show, right? 
we are called to hold firm, or that word actually means to present the word of life and let everybody see it. I used to be a mess. And then God started energizing me and working through me. And now, by his power, I want to obey. I want to love these people. I want to stand in awe of Jesus and trust his good purpose. And Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus are all listed in this chapter as examples to be followed by the Philippians and by us, what it practically looks like to live even though you're suffering and even though there's trials and even though there's relationship problems, these men are the blueprints that we can look to to follow as they live life as a church without complaining or grumbling. In verse 17, Paul is the example himself. He's saying that he would be the drink offering that's poured out over their sacrifice. That was an old covenant practice where an unblemished animal would be offered to God on an altar. And as it burned, they would pour wine on top of it. And that wine would just immediately vaporize and just go up as a pleasing aroma to God. That's how Paul viewed his life, just as a vapor poured out for these dear friends, these Philippians. And we are called as Christians to be that blameless and pure and faultless, unblemished sacrifice. That language that Paul is using would immediately be recognized by the Philippians as the Old Testament language of the kind of sacrifice that somebody would offer to God. And then he goes on to describe Timothy who's another example of someone who sincerely cares. And Paul wants so badly to send Timothy to the Philippians so that he can hear how they're really doing. Did you feel that way during quarantine when you were so tired of seeing your friends over Zoom? You're like, I want to see you for real. Like, how are you really doing? Or that hug that grandma gives you, like, oh, how you've grown. He wants to see, have they grown in their unity together? Have they grown in humility? Have they grown in the mind of Christ? And then finally, he gives the example of Epaphroditus, who risked his life to deliver money to Paul. PayPal doesn't do that. It'll deliver the money, but it doesn't care about you. And now Paul is saying that he's so eager to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians because when Epaphroditus was sick, he was more concerned that the Philippians had heard that he was ill. Like that was more disturbing to him than the actual illness itself. These people love each other. The gospel has had such an impact on their lives that they have become united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and they're doing nothing 
out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, they're considering others as more important than themselves. So I'll make that appeal to you. Look at what Christ has done for you. How should you respond? Be humble. Be unified. Be gospel-believing Christians with the mind of Christ living to the glory of God the Father.